following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. We'll be looking this morning in Matthew chapter 16. If you want to turn there in your Bibles or if you want to follow as we read along. Uh, In many ways, this is a climax uh, of the first part of the book of Matthew. As we finally answer the big question, who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus? And so uh, we get to answer that question today. But first, before we jump into the text, let's, uh, uh, into the message, let's read uh, chapter 16 of Matthew, verses 13 through 23. And when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem And suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." Um, perhaps one of the highest days and also one of the lowest days in Peter's life uh, as he gets it right and then uh, quickly gets it wrong. Um, This passage, uh, as I said, uh, is somewhat of a climax because it answers a question that Peter has been raising all along. And that question is, who is Jesus? Uh, But this passage actually answers two important questions. Uh, First, who is Jesus? But secondly, uh, it, 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 it probes the question, how do we know that it's the right answer? Right? Jesus, uh, Peter uh, declares that Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus affirms that that is the correct answer. But what's the, what's the basis? How is it that Peter knows this? And these, are, these are two huge questions for every believer, uh, for every person, actually, in the world. Every person must decide who Jesus is. But just as important is how they come to know that truth. Right? Where, where does that knowledge or that understanding comes from? And uh, in, if you've if you studied philosophy, if you slept through, I mean, uh, studied through a philosophy class in college, um, you know that the, the whole thing of how you know is the field of epistemology. Right, you all know that, right? Epistemology is how you know things, how you know what's true. And it's an interesting question because... Um, uh, from the beginning of time, 
Uh, it's not just that we know things, but, but, but how do we know that what we know is right? That's the field, right? And philosophers have debated, and maybe uh, as the philosophers debated, it's somewhat irrelevant. But the truth is we all answer that question somehow. Right? We all believe certain things, and we believe it on the basis of something. So what's the basis of our belief or our conviction? Well, for a long time and in many cultures, maybe even still today, uh, truth is based on authority. Uh, the person who says it's true, if they're in a position of, position of leadership or authority, we just take their word for it. But that really doesn't solve the problem because then you have to ask the question, well, how did they know? Like, what is the basis for them? And uh, throughout history, there's kind of been three uh, broad approaches. For many centuries, uh, it was decided that you could know truth based on logic or reason. Like, truth should just make sense. It should be logical. It should be reasonable. And so we call that period, uh, actually the age of reason, where for a long time people would would uh, apply their logical minds to decide what was true. And if it was logical, if it made sense, um, it was considered to be true. Uh, and that worked for many centuries uh, at some level. Uh, as the Industrial Revolution came along and people started building machines, uh, technology advanced quite rapidly. But Interesting, one of the last technologies to actually develop and advance was in the area of, do you know, in the area of medical science. So here's, here's the irony of the world. Uh, back at the, the turn of the uh, century, I mean, not this last century, but 100 years ago, uh, they were building cars and automobiles. They were on the verge of being air, building airplanes. But in, the ter- in terms of medicine, they still believed that... Uh, Illness was caused by the fluids of our body being out of balance, right? And so if the fluids of your body are out of balance, how do you fix that? Well, you stick somebody and you drain out some of the blood, right? And so, you know, we were, we were on the verge of flying, but if you got sick, the doctor would still poke you and bleed out the fluids, right? We were kind of behind on that. And that's because that made sense logically, Right? They could explain that logically, but it wasn't true. And so they began to see that actually logic uh, is not always a good basis for truth. And uh, about that time, people started doing actually scientific experiments, and they proved that actually, believe it or not, uh, uh, illness is not caused by our fluids being out of balance, and uh, the solution is not bleeding you, but it's actually caused by germs, right? And hooray that we know that because now we get to have coronavirus. See, if we had stuck with the old theory, there would be no coronavirus. We'd be all just getting bled a lot, right? We'd just bleeding all over. We wouldn't be, we wouldn't be worried about germs because, but they actually proved by scientific methods. So, uh, about era of World War I, uh, things changed and people started to say, no, we know what's truth because we can put it to the test, right? And that's really naturalism. And naturalism said, Logic and reason is flawed because you can you can you know reason yourself into anything. We need the the, the test of science. It has to be what you can observe with you, with your senses, with your eyes or your smell. Right? That's how we know what's true. And so, for many uh, for about the last hundred years, uh, science or naturalism took over as the way to know. And they said you can only know what you can prove scientifically. If you can't put it in a test tube and put it to some kind of test, then you can't really know if it's true or not. Um, but that recently has also come under fire. And, and this is what's happened. Uh, science is doing more and more research, more and more tests, 
And um, what's happened in the last 20 years is that the tests are starting to contradict each other. So one scientist does a battery of tests and he proves this is true. And the next guy comes along and he does some more tests and he proved that the exact opposite is true. Right? So one day you're supposed to eat vitamin C, the next day vitamin C is going to be the thing that kills you. Right? And, and both based on science. Right? And so what's happened is a modern man has, has become very skeptical of science. And it turns out that these scientists are not without their own agenda. Uh, their science and their research gets funded by big companies who put a lot of money, and they have an agenda, right? And so, so we've gotten very disillusioned with that model, and we've started to see that, well, that doesn't help either. You can't know based on science because oftentimes the science contradicts itself. And the agenda, the, the, the goals of the, of the researcher can often influence uh, the outcome. So that's not good either. So, so what replaces that, right? Logic and reason don't, don't help us. Science doesn't help us. What are we left with? Well, what we're left with is how I feel about it. And that really is how, and we can laugh, right? But that is actually how most truth is getting decided right now. We live in the age where we, we hold on to the truth that we like. And the good news is now with social media and Facebook and all that, you, you can pick. Right? You can pick the stream of truth you want. And Facebook is engineered to, to feed you that line of truth. Right? It's brilliant. And so, uh, so, so that's how kind of it works in the world today. We, we, we gravitate to the truth we like, that we feel good about. Uh, but what about as Christians? What about as those who are trying to know God? Is that how we know God? Do we decide, well, Jesus... You know, he just seems like the kind of guy I would want to like. And so I'm going to choose Jesus because he makes me feel good. Well, if you read through the Gospels and if you read through uh, what Jesus was really all about, uh, he did not have that effect on his contemporaries. Like the people who knew him, the people, the Pharisees and leaders, the people who really got to know him pretty well, most of them did not like what Jesus was. And so for them, if we're going to base it on feelings, Jesus is not truth. Right? He is not, we're not going to follow him. We're not going to believe what he says because they did not like what he said and what he taught. So, so how do we know truth? Right? So there's two big questions we want to look at today. First, who's Jesus? But also, how do we know that? What's the basis for our decision on who Jesus is? Uh, so there's a lot in this passage and a lot of complex theology that we don't have time to dig into all of, but, but let's at least try to answer those two questions. First, who is Jesus? Well, Peter makes it clear Jesus is the Messiah, right? He is the Messiah. And let's talk about what that means. So it says Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. This is way outside of Galilee. So if if you remember, we've said that Jesus is starting to distance himself from the Jews and from Israel. And he's now locating himself, traveling around more outside of Galilee and outside of predominantly Jewish areas. And so now he's in Caesarea Caesarea Philippi, it would have been in, in the time of David's kingdom, the farthest most point of Israel, very far north, and, and Jesus is there. Uh, but at this time, it's a very pagan place. Uh, the temple to Pan was there, and it was very pagan, uh, not a lot of Jews, and so he's there. Uh, and we don't really know what he's doing there, but he's, he's, uh, what we do know is he's ministering to the disciples. He's got his, his small group, probably maybe just the twelve, that he is teaching and working with, and he says to them, who do people say that I am? 
And they said, well, popular consensus is that you are either John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, or one of the other prophets. Um, all that to say that Jesus, the, the, the crowd has decided that Jesus is, is some kind of prophet. And that was not a small thing. You have to understand that at this time in Israel, there had not been a prophetic voice for about 400 years. And then along came John the Baptist, the first prophetic voice in 400 years. And so that was exciting news, and they were excited about John the Baptist. And so for, for John to get followed up by yet another uh, powerful prophet who was healing and teaching in the person of Jesus was a big deal. And so to call Jesus a prophet is a great honor. And it means that they, they saw in Jesus something uh, extraordinary, that he was not just an average run-of-the-mill rabbi or teacher or Jew, but he was uh, given some kind of power to teach God's word. Uh, but, um, but, of course, that answer falls short, right? Uh, it's not enough to say that Jesus is a prophet, because a prophet's job was to point to someone who was to come. Right? It was to point to something else, something future that, that God would do. And, in fact, we know that the prophet's pointed to the Messiah. So to call Jesus a prophet is actually to fall short uh, if he is indeed the Messiah. Uh, so, so Jesus turns the question then to the, to the disciples, and the, when he says, who do you say that I am, it's plural, so he's asking all of them as a group. Who do you as a group, as my close followers, who do you say that I am? And Peter uh, has over and over shown himself to be somewhat of a leader in the group, and if there's anything we know about Peter, it's that he, you know, his mouth was, was, was always going off, right? Speak first, think later. Right? That's kind of Peter's motto, as he had on his T-shirt. Talk first, think about it later. And so, so he pipes up, right? And we don't know if he's speaking uh, for the whole group or if he uh, really is alone in his judgment here. We don't know. But, uh, but he speaks up and he says, you are the Christ, uh, the Son of the Living God, and the word Christ is the Greek word. It means the Anointed One. Uh, but they probably weren't speaking Greek, right? You understand that the later authors wrote the Bible in Greek, but Jesus would have spoke Aramaic, right? And in Aramaic was very close to Hebrew, and in Aramaic, Aramaic uh, he would have used the word Messiah, right? And Christ means the Messiah. He says, "You are the Messiah, the Son of the Living God." Uh, what? What did he mean by the Messiah? Well, the Messiah um, uh, has, has several different pictures or images in the Old Testament, but the one that would be central, the one that would be the main theme, would be the idea that it was a, a descendant of David who would come as a king to rule on David's throne. Right. So Israel had been without a king for uh, many hundred years, and uh, ever since the exile. And they were looking for a king to come to reestablish Israel as a kingdom. And, of course, Jesus came proclaiming a kingdom. And, uh, and we know the answer because we read the first part of the book. In the introduction, by the way, Matthew tells us right off who Jesus is. Right? Matthew tells us that Jesus is the Messiah in the first four chapters of the book. It's only the crowds and the disciples that are wrestling with this question. Um, so, so the Messiah is this promised one who would, who would reign on the throne of David. But beyond that, Peter also says that he is the son of the living God. Uh, and that's really 
uh, adding a whole new dimension to this idea of Messiah. Right? Not only is he this anointed one who would come in the, uh, in, as a descendant of David, but he was the son of the living God. Now, we don't know exactly what all Peter meant by that theologically. Uh, for us as Christians who have developed this theology over a couple thousand years, for us, Son of God means that Jesus was God uh, in human flesh, right? That, that Jesus existed for all eternity with the Father in heaven. And that one day the Father sent Jesus to earth. He came in the form of a, a little baby and born in, in the manger. And he had a human nature, fully man, but of, he was God, fully divine. Uh, two natures in this one being. Uh, Peter may not have quite meant all of that, but, but Peter did mean for sure that Jesus had a unique relationship with God as his father in a way that nobody else on earth could describe, right? That no rabbi, no teacher, no, how, no, no matter how great, could have described himself as the son of God, the, the son of the living God, like Jesus was. Peter knew that somehow Jesus was unique in his relationship to the father, Right? And so as Messiah, he was not just another prophet, not just another king, but there was something very extraordinary and absolutely unique about the character and person of Christ. Um, and, and, and that's the right answer. Good job, Peter. Jesus says uh, to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, uh, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. That's the right answer. And by the way, it's important to note that Jesus has never used this title of himself. In fact, all the way to, to the cross, Jesus avoids using the title Messiah. Uh, and the reason is, is most certainly because they, as we'll see in the, next, in the next account, they misunderstood what the Messiah was and the purpose and mission of the Messiah. And so, so Jesus uh, does not go around telling them, hey, by the way, guys, I'm the Messiah. Uh, all right? But, but Jesus had pointed to it, certainly his miracles had pointed to it, uh, certainly a lot about his life pointed to it, uh, but Jesus makes it clear that this revelation didn't, wasn't something they figured out on their own. It wasn't because they had heard Jesus teach or because they would put together his miracles. In other words, it wasn't, they didn't come to know this truth on the basis of logic or reason. Jesus, by that declaration, throws out logic and reason as a basis for truth. He says, you didn't just figure this out. People didn't just figure this out, that I'm the Messiah, because it's logical, because it's a reasonable explanation for who I am. That is not the basis for truth. Uh, we'll come back to this idea, and we'll come back to Peter a little more, because we're going to skip over some things. But I want to answer, uh, in addition to who Jesus is, Jesus also reveals his mission. Right, so if we jump down to verse 21, it says, From that time on, from that, that moment, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Right, so once the, the disciples are clear and they've got this revelation that Jesus is the Messiah, now Jesus shifts his focus of ministry. And for the rest of the book of Matthew, Jesus is no longer teaching the crowds. He's no longer proclaiming the kingdom to the masses. Now he is teaching the disciples, and the focus is not just the kingdom coming in general, but he's describing the mission and purpose of the Messiah. And central to the mission of the Messiah is that the Messiah came 
not to bring uh, a restored kingdom of, to Israel. Right? Jesus said, I'm not coming to overthrow Rome. Right? I came actually to suffer and to die. Because Israel's greatest problem is not Rome. Israel's greatest problem is sin and its consequences. God's wrath and judgment and eternal death. Separation from God for all eternity. That's the bigger problem, right? Um, and so, so Jesus lays out to, to his disciples, you know, I, I must go to Jerusalem and there I'm going to suffer many things. The Jewish leaders are going to come against me and they are going to, they are going to win. They are going to overcome and they will kill me. Well, this is not the Messiah that Peter was talking about. When Jesus said, you're the, when, when Peter said, Jesus, you're the Messiah, this is not the picture he had in mind. Right? He's picturing Jesus marching in on a, on a, a great white stallion with an army of angels behind him and him speaking to Herod saying, be gone from Jerusalem. And instantly Rome just, all the Roman soldiers just vaporize into thin air, right? And he goes and he sits on the throne and he reestablishes Israel as this mighty nation. Okay, that's the Messiah that Peter's thinking about. Jesus says, no, I'm going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die on the cross. But after three days, I will be raised up. God will vindicate my life and my teaching. God will vindicate and prove that I am the Messiah, not uh, by conquering Rome, but by the resurrection. Well, we all know the story that, um, uh, which by, by the way, uh, we'll talk about, it says the, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That does not mean that Satan won't, won't win, right? Because Satan is not the ruler of hell. Uh, hell is not Satan's kingdom. We understand that, right? Hell is Satan's prison, right? It's where Satan is sent to suffer God's wrath and judgment for all eternity. But the word is not even hell, okay? In the Greek, the word is not hell. The word is actually Hades. And Hades simply means the place of the dead. And so Jesus says that uh, I'm going to build my church, and, and death itself will not overcome the church, right? And the reason is that because death itself would not overcome Jesus. Jesus would die, but it would not conquer him. He would raise up and he would show uh, that he was greater than death itself because he conquered sin and death. Right? Um, so, uh, so back to Peter. Um, Peter says, no, Lord, no. And he takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. Uh, Jesus, that's the wrong thing. You don't understand who you are. Let me teach you uh, and explain to you what the Messiah is really all about. May this never happen to you. Um, well, we'll come back to Peter a little more. Like I said, I want to pick up on Peter. But let's talk a little bit about uh, how we know that the answer is right. right? How, did, how did Peter know? How do we know that Jesus is who he said he is? Well, Jesus already uh, threw out logic and reason. He says, you, you don't know me. You will never know me. You will never understand me on the basis of, of pure logic and reason. Now, does that mean that the gospel is illogical or unreasonable? Well, thankfully, no. It is wisdom. But as, as Paul tells us, it's, it's a wisdom that is not the wisdom of man. 
And humanly speaking, it is in many ways very illogical. Okay, the wisdom of man looks at the gospel, looks at God sending his son as a king who died for us, and the world sees that as foolishness. Right? It sees the cross as foolishness, as weakness. Right? And how can God save the world through death and through weakness? It seems very illogical. And Jesus makes it clear that, you, Peter, you did not come to this knowledge uh, on the basis of flesh and blood because you figured it out or because somebody else figured it out and explained it to you so clearly that you knew it was the answer. No, he said, no, uh, this understanding came to you because God revealed it to you. Because my Father in heaven revealed it to you. And here is the, here is the answer to the question, how do we know truth? I'm, I'm here to tell you there's only one absolute uh, authoritative way to know what truth is. And that is if the God of all creation tells you it's true. Right? No matter how illogical or, uh, or logical, no matter how reasonable or unreasonable, no matter how scientific or unscientific, when the God who created the universe tells you this is truth, you can know it's true. Right? Of course, the philosophers will tell you, well, but how do you know there's a God? But we'll let them debate that one, and they'll have a lot of time in eternity <laughs> to sort that one out. Uh, but, but the truth is that God has revealed himself as creator of the world. And to those who receive that revelation, and to those whom God has given the further revelation that he sent his son as the savior of the world, as the way that we can know and have a restored relationship with the God of all creation, who takes away our sin and makes us once again God's true children. Right? We know that simply and purely because God reveals it to us. God reveals it. He revealed it to Peter. Uh, and it's interesting that Jesus doesn't say, I revealed it to you. Jesus doesn't say, look, I can take credit for this because of my brilliant teaching and because of all the miracles I did. He says, not even, not even direct contact with Jesus himself was enough. He said, you needed the revelation from God the Father to have eyes to see and understand who I am. Right? Now, if Peter needed that revelation, what do we need to know who Jesus is? We need that revelation even more so. Because right? we don't have the living Jesus to, to watch. We don't see his miracles firsthand. We don't hear his teaching firsthand. How desperately we need that revelation. And there's a couple implications, a couple things for us that we need to know. And the first is that if we know Jesus, if we know who he really is, if we understand who he really is, it is God's blessing. Right? Jesus said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because God's revealed this to you. Right? It is a blessing of God that he opens our hearts and minds and eyes to understand who Jesus is. It, it is a gift of God's amazing grace. Right? If you know in your heart who Jesus is, if you have received him, if you've looked at scripture and you've said, yes, I believe this is true, it is not because you are a genius. It's not because it made sense to you and it seems so logical that you figured it out. Right? Uh, it may not even be because you felt good about it. I have a dear friend who, when he first heard the gospel, it made him so angry, he was like frothing at the mouth. 
And he tells this story that he took this bucket. He worked in a big factory. He took a bucket, and he kicked it so hard, it went about 100 yards across his factory floor. Because he was so angry when he heard that God loved him. Right? Uh, he, he didn't feel good about that truth. Right? But God broke through, and God revealed himself to that, guy, that man, and he was changed forever by it. Right? You know Jesus because God has revealed himself. He's revealed Jesus. He has opened up your eyes and your heart to that truth. Um, and that's how you know who he is. Right? And that's the only real basis for, for knowing anything, is the revelation of God. Um, so that, that has another implication for us as, as, as those who, who teach. Um, and that is that uh, we... Uh, you know, we, we, we don't make Jesus known by the brilliance of our own arguments, right? When we go out and we share the gospel, which we'll talk about this, we are to be witnesses, for sure. Um, but uh, it's not on the basis of our brilliant approach to evangelism, right? It's not because we're so elegant or because we're so good at explaining it. It is not because our... Um, our apologetics, our defense, our way of answering the questions are so convincing that people are just overwhelmed with our wisdom. Now, when I first came to Christ, I thought this is how it was. And I was pretty convinced I was smart because I was good at debating. And I, I thought, I can debate anybody into the kingdom. And so that was my approach to evangelism. I would get into these arguments with people and I would shred all of their logic and reason. And I would show them how stupid they were for believing what they believed and how brilliant the gospel was. How much fruit do you think I got through that? Zero. I made a lot of enemies, though. That's a great way to win friends and influence people. I had a lot of people who did not want to talk to me about anything. right? And, uh, and if people did come to Christ, it was not because I convinced them. All I convinced them was how obnoxious and annoying I was. Right? That's what I convinced them of. Um, no, it is not our it is not our strategies or our methods or our techniques. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have those. I'm not saying you shouldn't have some plan for how you communicate the gospel to people. By all means, find one. There's lots out there, and they all can be effective. And it's good to have a, a method, a plan. But know that it's not up to you. You're not the one responsible to convince people into the into the kingdom. We are witnesses. Right? We're we're news bearers. All we do is is proclaim the good news. Right? It's up to it's up to the hearers to respond how they will. And they will respond to that message positively when God opens their eyes and they they know it's true because God's revealed it to them. All right, so 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 what we see here is we see uh, two roles going on. Now, does this mean, so this is the role of revelation. So does this mean that God just goes around zapping people? Like God's up there with this big uh, lightning bolt of revelation, and he's just taking aim, and he goes, oh, there's a victim, and he just flashes down this lightning bolt and zap. All of a sudden, people have this amazing revelation of Jesus, and they get saved. Well, that may happen, but that's not typically how it works. God works through two means, one through revelation, but he also works through the role or through the means of proclamation. Right? We do have a part. Uh, we are called to be witnesses. We are called to be uh, message bearers. We are called to, be, to tell the good news by proclaiming it. And so we see that with Peter. 
And Peter's really the first one, and, and he does hold a somewhat of a, a preeminent role as the first witness, the first proclaimer. So going back, let's back up a little bit. Uh, Peter gives the right answer, and Jesus says, Blessed are you, son of uh, Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let's talk about Peter. Okay, so here's Peter. Uh, he's the rock. Or, or is he the rock? Or is Jesus the rock? Is Jesus the rock and Peter's just the pebble? There's the big rock and there's the little rock. Uh, what does it mean that he's got the keys? Uh, what does it mean that he binds things? Right? Who? Loaded questions here. Uh, I hope you have a couple hours. Because this was going to take to get through this. I'm, I'm not going to dig into all of this, right? And uh, you may disagree with my conclusions. That's fine. You're welcome to. I'll pray God gives you revelation. So you can be as revealed as, as insightful as I am, right? Let me tell you what I think, right? And I'm not going to go into all the arguments because it just would take too much time. But I'll, I'll try to give you in a nutshell. First of all, Jesus says, you are Peter. Petros, okay, in Greek it's the word Petros. Petros is the male form of the, of the, of the word, rock. And, and Jesus probably here gives him that name. Right? So he used to be Simon Barjona, Simon son of Barjona, but it's probably right in this instance that, God actually, that Jesus actually gives Peter his name, Peter, Petros. Right? It says that upon this Petra, so Petra is the feminine word for rock. Right? So Petras is male because Peter's a boy. You right? can't call Petra, Peter Petra because that would make him a girl rock. Okay, so Jesus, I'm Peter the boy rock, and upon the girl rock, I build my church. All right? Now, uh, some people, and, and, and this, this Peter has keys to the kingdom, he binds, he loses things, and uh, the Catholics uh, way back jumped on this and said, see, this is how we have popes. Right? A little bit later, the reformers came along and they didn't like the popes, and so they they did not like this passage because the, the Catholics were using it to support that Peter was the first of many popes and that all the popes have the keys of the kingdom and can bind and loose and unlock and lock. Right? Uh, so uh, some very creative reformers said, well, what Jesus is really saying here is Peter is a little rock and Petros means pebble. And the big rock is Jesus. And upon the big rock, Jesus, I build my church. Sounds great, right? Amen? problem with that argument is that Petros and Petra is not big rock and little rock. It's just rock and rock. To make it more complicated, Jesus probably was talking to them in Aramaic. And in Aramaic, he would have called them Kephas. So uh, what's Peter's third name? you got Peter, you got Simon, and you have Cephas. Where did Cephas come from? Well, Cephas is the Aramaic word for rock. So Peter's name in Aramaic is what? Kephas or we call Cephas, right? Kepha. So in Aramaic, Jesus would have said, you are Kepha, and on Kepha, I build my church. Right? He uses the same word. What does that mean? Well, it means, it means this. It means Jesus is saying, on Peter, I build my church. Not on me, right? Uh, that would make the whole uh, word and, and analogy kind of confusing. Right? Jesus is saying, you are Peter, and on, on this rock, you are the rock, and on this rock, I build my church. And, and what Jesus is saying here is that Peter does have a predominant role as the founder of the church. Not because Jesus died for our, uh, because Peter died for the sins of the, of the world, right? 
Certainly, Jesus is the rock. And, and the, the Gospels in the New Testament makes that clear in other places, that Jesus is the rock. He is the foundation. His life and his blood paid the penalty for our sin. But, but here's what happened. Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again. And after about 50 days, he ascended. Well, 40-some days, he ascended. And he went back to heaven. Right? And Jesus was gone. And he was gone before the church began. When did the church begin? Well, the church began at Pentecost when God poured out his Holy Spirit. And who got up and preached this amazing sermon? Billy Graham, right? No, no, actually, he hadn't been born yet. Who? Peter. Peter proclaimed the message of Jesus. He proclaimed to the Jews exactly who Jesus was as the Messiah and what he did going to the cross and dying for them. And what happened on that day? 5,000 people came to Christ, came to faith. Boy, I dream of you know, having that kind of day. Just, one, just let me do that once. Right? Um, Peter launched the church. Right? But, but here's the thing. He did not launch the church by anything other than the proclaiming of the truth of who Jesus was. Right? Um, there's nothing magic about Peter. Peter didn't have any extraordinary authority other than that what God gave him as a, as a witness, as the first witness, as the primary predominant witness uh, that, that proclaimed Jesus the first time and that launched, established, planted the church. Right? And we see Peter's role in, in many ways in the book of Acts as, a, as an early leader, as, as a rock upon which the early church was first built, right? Um, what about the keys and, and the binding? Um, that's a confusing one, and oftentimes we think of keys, you know, somebody who has the keys has somebody who, 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 who can unlock the front door. Right? So sometimes Peter's seen, and, and, and you, you've, heard, you've seen the cartoons, right? And there's these cartoons when we get to heaven and to the pearly gates, and we've got to somehow do what? We've got to get by Peter, because Peter's there with the keys, I'm going to let you in or not let you in, right? Uh, it's up to me, I get to decide, right? And so you see these bizarre twisted cartoons of people trying to justify themselves to Peter of why he should let them in. Okay, well, that, that's probably a very gross misunderstanding of what uh, it meant for Peter to have the keys. Uh, first of all, notice that it's not the word key, it's the word keys. Okay, there, there's one door to heaven, so if there's one door, how can it have multiple keys? Well, it really can't, right? And that's because probably the picture is not here of Peter holding the keys to the doorway. In other words, Peter being the one who gives somehow access to people into heaven. Instead, it's really the picture of a steward, right? Have you ever seen those geeky guys who walk around with like, uh, you know, this wad of keys, right? And they got it on the belt. It's like 10,000 keys. or They kind of walk like this because it weighs so much, right? Uh, who are those guys? Well, they are really important, right? They must be really important because they have access to everything. And it's true that guys, the guy with that wad of keys has been given some kind of authority, right? Not to let people in or out, but actually to all the inner rooms of the building, right? To the storerooms, to the equipment rooms, to the supply rooms. He's a guy that's got access to the coffee pot, <laughs> right? And to the coffee and to the coffee to put in the coffee pot, right? He's a steward. He's a manager, right? He's not the, probably not the owner, because the owner's not going to carry around that big wad of keys. That's why he hired this guy, 
right? Uh, the owner owns the building, but the steward is the one who manages it. And he has access to all of the resources. And his job is to get those resources to the right people. He, he's a manager of the treasure houses, the storehouses of the, of the factory, or the building, or the house. And his job is to be distributing those resources to the, to the guests or to the residents or to the people who need it. That's probably the picture that Jesus is painting here of Peter. You've been given keys to the resources of heaven. And what are those resources? What's well, the truth of the gospel? It's the message that they proclaim. Right? So uh, later, uh, after the resurrection, when, 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 uh, and after, G, after Peter had denied Jesus, and Jesus rises, and in John, they meet up on the beach, and they have breakfast, and they go for this little walk, and, Peter, and Jesus says to Peter, Simon, son of John, goes back to his whole name, right? No more Peter. Now he's back to Simon. Do you love me more than these? And he said to them, Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And what did Jesus say to him? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep, right? That's the keys of the kingdom. Uh, You have the power because you have the message to feed the sheep, right? And that was the apostolic role. And Peter was the first. Later, Jesus includes, includes the other apostles, and so does Paul. As, as the ones who are the foundation of the church, what he's saying here is their proclamation, their message is the foundation of the church. Not Peter as a person, but Peter as the one who proclaims the gospel. Right? He is the foundation of the church. He's binding and loosing. Binding and loosing is a rabbinic language that had to do with binding people to the law or loosing them from the law. Right? Peter and the apostles uh, bound us to some laws, but they've set us free from a bunch, right? They interpreted the Old Testament for us. And in their teaching, they, they, they bound and they loosed, right? We no longer follow the Old Testament laws because uh, Peter has loosed us from those things. But again, it's by his teaching. It's by his teaching. All right, so, so the church is built on, on this foundation of the body of teaching, of Peter and the apostles, right? And that's what we have in the New Testament. And interestingly, even them, when, they, when Peter preached his, his sermon at Pentecost, he didn't say, I had so many experiences with, with Jesus, and I want you to believe me because I spent a lot of time with Jesus. Peter actually never says that. He never even says, actually, that I saw the resurrected Jesus in his sermon at Pentecost. He does not say, you should believe that Jesus is the Messiah because I saw him risen from the dead. Now you go back and study that sermon. You know what Peter says? Peter said, you should believe Jesus is the Messiah because the Old Testament says so. And he quotes Old Testament scripture. Right? So, so the, the basis of our faith is God's revelation first in his word. And the apostles affirmed that. And the apostles actually continued it. They wrote the second half, right? And that's the revelation. And it's that revelation upon which the church is built. Uh, and we are to be his, his witnesses. We are to be proclaiming the gospel. But that gospel must be anchored to what Peter and the apostles taught about who Jesus is. Right? Okay, last point, last thing. And let me uh, wrap up real quickly. And if you have lots of questions about the theology of those verses, uh, don't talk to me. Right? Just do your own research. No, I'm not kidding. You can come talk to me. I'd be glad to... Uh, Break it down more. 
Uh, let me apply these, this, 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 though, with one last thought. Um, we have here this amazing and very dangerous mixing, right? So, so Peter makes this amazing revelation, this amazing declaration of who Jesus is. And, and two minutes later, Jesus is severely rebuking him because he got it so wrong, right? How could Peter be holding the keys of the kingdom and be so wrong at the same time, right? This is not giving me a lot of confidence in this whole system, right? Um, how this works. Well, uh, there's this, this a dangerous mixing here of two things that, that uh, we, should, we should never mix together. Uh, did you know that actually water can, can cause fire? Did you know that? Usually we think of, wire, of water as a great extinguishing agent. If we have a fire, we need to put water on it. But there are actually cases, I learned when I was a firefighter, that um, water can actually cause a fire. If you put water on sodium hydride, it will explode. If you put it on sodium, sodium hydrosulfate, it can actually start a fire. You never want to mix those things on purpose, right? Or accidentally. Maybe you do want to do it on purpose, but never accidentally, right? It's disastrous. But what we see Peter doing here is mixing two serious things. One, he mixed revelation with human wisdom, with his own human agenda. And here's the, the, the important lesson for us as we close. If you know Jesus, it's because God has revealed him to you and you've been given the blessing of revelation. But the blessing of revelation does not make you infallible. In other words, it doesn't mean that you're always going to be right. In fact, there is great danger in taking the revelation of God and mixing it with uh, man-centered thinking. It's like water and sodium hydrosulfate. It's disastrous. And that's exactly what Peter did. He took the revelation of God, Jesus as the Messiah, and he mixed it with his own agenda for a Messiah that would over, uh, overcome, conquer Rome. And it was disastrous. And Jesus' rebuke of Peter is harsh. Get behind me, Satan. And it's not because Jesus is being mean to Peter, but it's because Jesus is being resolute in resisting the temptation of Satan. It's the same thing Satan put before Jesus in the wilderness. And Jesus is resisting that message from Satan. Um. There's nothing more dangerous, right, than mixing revelation with our own personal agenda, taking the truth of God and using it for my own purpose. Uh, But the truth is that the church is guilty of this a lot. We have to understand that we can be so guilty of this. Where we hear what we want to hear from the gospel, we receive God's revelation. But then we decide how that fits my agenda and my goal and my purpose, right? Uh, That's the flaw of the prosperity gospel. That Jesus died not to save you from sin, but to give you a life of comfort, health, wealth, and it's all about you. Right? It's it's a deadly combination. Right? And and so, a couple things. First, we need to understand that our thinking is terribly flawed. Okay? You don't say it out loud, but you need to say that to yourself. My thinking is really messed up. Right? But we don't like that because we like our thinking. We feel good about our thinking, right? We have been given a worldview uh, 
that bombards us every day with ideas. What is the source of those ideas? Right? What is the source of our worldview? Well, it comes from the world around us. It comes from culture and society, right? And, and culture and society are kind of neutral, right? Like some of it might be off, but most of it's probably pretty good, right? Right? Wrong! Wrong! Bat. Buzz that one, okay? Jesus says to, Jesus does not say to Peter, get behind me bad cultural thinking. Get behind me, you know, uh, cultural confusion. What does he say? Get behind me, Satan. Where does our world's view, where does worldly thinking ultimately come from? Satan. Here's the thing we have to understand is our thinking has been penetrated by Satan. Right? Our thinking and our minds have been invaded by the lies and bombarded by the lies of Satan. So that our thinking, as much as we like it, is deeply rooted in Satan's purpose and agenda. Right? And so we've got to be very careful and be very leery of our own ideas and our own thinking. And know its source is satanic. It is lies. It is trying to undermine and undo God's purpose. And this was true for Israel. Peter had grown up as a, as a devout Jew with 2,000 years of, of Old Testament, uh, in theory, worldview-shaping truth. But Satan twists it, right? He twists it. Satan, Satan's uh, technique of lying is not to tell straight-out lies, but to take truth and distort it and twist it, right? Jesus was the Messiah. That was not wrong. But Satan had twisted what that meant. Right? Um, pride and selfishness uh, make us want, may, uh, draw us to Satan's lies. That it is all about me. Right? That I'm the center of the universe and I have my rights. That I'm the rightful Lord and master over my own life. And we like it when tell, Satan tells us that's right. That's right. Jesus says to Peter, you are a hindrance, you are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Right? Peter had taken this revelation, but he had mixed it with the things of man. It was disastrous. We've got to be so careful that we set our mind not on the things of man, but on the things of God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Right? Uh, we need to seek further revelation, further understanding. Romans 12, 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing, by the changing of your mind by changing how you think. We need to seek the purposes and plans of God, and we need to pray for more revelation. Uh, there's a lot of things about the spirit of this age I could pick on, but let's just talk about one. Uh, how do we know what's true? Uh, we, we, like it or not, we like truth that we feel good about. Right? That's how we lean on our own understanding. 
Right? We gravitate to truth that we like. Uh, when I tell you that, that God reveals to whom he will, right? that God chooses who he reveals himself to and who he doesn't, do you like that? I'll be honest, I do not like that. It is just downright not democratic, right? God is not being democratic. Doesn't he know we get to choose? Who does he think he is getting to choose, right? Right? You see, we, we gravitate to the truth we like because it's rooted in our cultural worldview. Where does that thinking come from? Does that come from God or from Satan? Right? It comes from Satan. Right? God created the world. The world exists by him and through him and for him. Guess what? He gets to pick. Right? And God is fair. God's character is good and loving. His picking is not unjust. But he's blessed you. If he's revealed himself to you, he has blessed you. He has chosen you. You didn't choose him. Jesus says, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you that you might bear much fruit. We should rejoice in that. That God, in spite of who we were, uh, revealed himself to you and I so that we could know him, so we could love him, so we could have a relationship with him. Let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.